Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 634. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, did you miss us? Yes, we are still here going. Well, I'm saying fit and strong, but we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. And a big, big thank you to... I put an email out and I put a shout out on the show last last time just to help with in kind of funding the Starship Sova. It's... I totally understand it's difficult times for everybody, but you know what I mean? You stepped up to the mark and you kind of donate, and it's lovely. Thank you. Please keep it coming. That would be fantastic. You know, go over to Patreon and the the PayPal donations is there. They're all on the front of the website. But a huge thank you to everybody, you know, and people who haven't, you know, and who've had to kind of step back from it. I totally understand it. You know what I mean? Like the, I know what in, in England, the, the government's funding some of the wages. 80% of the wages, but there's folks out there who aren't getting anything, you know what I mean? And it's just like desperate times. It still is, do you know what I mean? It's still blooming horrible, to be honest, man. And scary. We heard, I heard the other day, you know, you kind of get a bit complacent and it's now in the northeast of England, you know, it was down London, but it, and you kind of, all you do is listen to the northeast news, sorry, L- London news, and you think, you know, the, the world's collapsing and all of a sudden, it's it's getting better then you think, oh right, right. And then you find, you know, it's getting it's fallen off the cliff here in the northeast of England. So enough of that though. Enough of that. I have got some exciting news to tell you after the little intro. I'll tell you who's coming on the on the day show and then oh ho ho. So the main fiction is Crystal Ash. This is an original to Starship Sofa and it's by Atlantia Everpedu. It was a fiction writer from Greece, and it's narrated by Summer Brooks. Then at the end of the show, we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, hello. It feels like I haven't even spoken or texted Amy for so long or emailed for for ages. You know, we're in our own little worlds, yeah. But Amy, we're looking forward to your... I'm getting quite excited there. So yes, that's what's coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. And, right, just before this exciting news, I just want to kind of point out the kind of dedication I'm doing to this show. It is four minutes past six in the morning. Yes, we've got, we've got a day off, me and Mrs. Mrs. S there, Mrs. Starship, Melanie, and I've, I've got me 
I've got a table. I've got to be all my jobs have got to be done and dusted, and I've got to go. I'm doing Starship so far now, nice and early. Then I've got to go up the allotment and do me video there. Did I tell you? You'll not know, but I got stung by me bees. Oh, yes, right on the neck. <laughs> so yes, and I've got to be all wrapped up. Dogs done by half eight as well. So we're going. We're going actually shopping today. Oh, it's a big exciting thing. Yeah, it's food shopping. So that is what's coming in today's show, but the good, oh man, the good news is even better than that. Our very own, very, um, well, I like the kind of thing, you know, you know, I taught Jeremy everything he knows, do you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, our good editor, our, our sorely missed editor, Jeremy Sal, who went on to kind of create, you know, or who's went on to pursue a, a life in books as an as a actual writer, as getting getting a, a deal with one of the, well, I guess, the biggest publisher in the UK of science fiction. And his book comes out. It, it's like less than 30 days. It, it's, I'm, a, I'm more excited for Jeremy, I think, than what Jeremy is, you know what I mean? It comes out on the 4th of June, and it's called Stormblood. And listen, I'll be just amazing if you could just kind of come over and pre-order it. I'll put links on. Do you know what I mean? There's there's three links there Jeremy's provided. And it would just be fantastic. I'll give you a little, a little tease for it because I just know what, you know, I've, I've listened to Jeremy's stories before. We've played them on the show. And, man, it's going to be a roller coaster. Jeremy Sal's debut, Stormblood, a dark space opera about DNA, alien DNA that makes users permanently addicted to adrenaline and aggression. It comes out on the 4th of July from Glance in all formats, including audiobook. And he would love it if you pre-ordered. he got this tackle on the end. He would love it if you pre-ordered a copy. And I've got my audiobook there just sitting waiting to... To like come down into me audible app. I got that as soon as I knew there was actually an order, you know, an audible book version of it. I'm not sure who's narrating it. I'll find out next time and let you know. And to be honest, I'm going to get the book and everything. Do you know what I mean? I'm hoping there's a little, there's a little you know what I mean? <laughs> little signed copy coming over for us, but I'll buy one as well. You know what I mean? But that's just. I'm just like overwhelmed for Jeremy because it was always Jeremy's. It was always a writer. It was always ambition to get you know to become a writer. But when when you when you're at the bottom of that cliff and you're looking at the top of like the goals you've got to achieve and the knockbacks, you know what I mean. And I know Jeremy's, you know, he's had knockbacks and and setbacks in in writing. It's a hard. Everyone does. Do you know what I mean? But I just knew. You know what I mean? He's got a gift where he can just take that knock back and just carry on the next day. Do you know what I mean? He writes like the wind. Do you know what I mean? He just, man, can push these out. And character-driven, that's what I love. Do you know what I mean? Character-driven, but by God, it's got an edge. And I'm sure with, with Jeremy's stories, like, you know what I mean? You'll be kind of, oh, oh, you know, you, kinda, you can feel, kind of, like, kind of, you can just feel, like, sinew getting ripped and just muscle getting torn. And, oh, I'm look, Jeremy, 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 come on, bring it on. So we'll be kind of chatting. I'm hoping, um, I'm hoping Gary, our editor, can have a little little chat with Jeremy as well. That might come off. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but we'll certainly keep you informed about Jeremy's new book, Bloodstorm. It comes out on 
the 4th of June from Galantz. And like I say, if you just come over to the front of the website there now, there's some links just to pre-order it, man, and that would be just fantastic. So, let's get into the main fiction. Like I say, it is an original to Starship Sova called Crystal Ash by Atlantia Ivipaidou, who is a, spe- a speculative fiction writer from Greece and the winner of the 2018 Fantastia Words Award in Science Fiction category. Her short stories have been published in various Greek anthologies and more recently featured in the Onyx Path Gods and Monsters. She is also a writer and reviewer of At. Nicrophilia, Greece, which is Greece's prime e-zine for horror and fantasy. Now, I'm probably butchering all them words, but you, God loves a try, yeah? Now, this story is narrated by Summer Brooke. Summer Brooke is a story addict who watches too much television and enjoys putting her encyclopedic sci-fi geek knowledge to the test in discussions about science fiction, horror and comics. She's been doing just that on Slice of Sci-Fi since 2005 and co-host and producer and host and EIC and as the Babylon podcast co-host from... 2006 to 2012. Summer is also an avid reader and writer of science fiction, fantasy and thrillers with a handful of published credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy action adventure and a monster movie extravaganza. She also does narrations for and Tales to Terrify, Escape Pod amongst others and has doing audiobooks in her sights. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present. Crystal Ash by Atalanti Evripidou The incinerators had come for Aunt Ketty's body a month ago. The fridge, which ran on stolen power, had gone empty before the first week was over. The canned food in the pantry had lasted 15 days. After that, her meals mainly consisted of soaked wheat crackers, to which she sometimes added tomato paste and pickled olives. She retched every time she swallowed them. When they ran out, too, she started eating the toothpaste, just a tiny bit each time, in case she could make it last longer. It did last longer, but not enough. Time went by like that until the big day came. She woke up at dawn and dragged herself to the kitchenette. With a smile on her face, she fished last year's half-burned candles out of the drawer and took the green oval tub from the cupboard where she had been keeping it for this exact occasion. Excited, she removed the lid. It was filled to the brim with crumbled biscuits. Her aunt had paid a fortune for it in the black market, She was going to make her a cake for her 13th birthday. With trembling fingers, she put the candles on the crumbs and lit them. There was one less than there should be, but she didn't mind. She made her regular wish, but didn't blow, fearing she might scatter the biscuit crumbs. She removed the candles carefully, threw them into the sink and ran the faucet. Then she grabbed a spoon and attacked the biscuits. The crumbs' texture wasn't what she imagined. They caught in her throat, choking her. She started coughing. Lumps of half-chewed biscuit landed on the countertop. When the coughing stopped, she licked them off the cold surface. 
She continued eating, slower this time. The door of the small apartment burst open like popcorn in the pot. She screamed and jumped up, dropping the tub on the floor, biscuit crumbs flying in all directions. Some of them even found their way into her eyes, making them all stingy and her scream even louder. Plaster and tin had flown everywhere, creating a cloud of dust. She fell on her knees and covered her head with her hands, crying. The entire room smelled of cheap, burned wick. A pair of metallic feet stood before her and three round protrusions slipped into her hair. They were the officer's censers, cold and unyielding like Aunt Ketty's fingers on the morning she'd found her dead, with glassy eyes lying on the frayed living room couch. Subject, the Sia Antonopoulou, the officer said, his voice even colder than his censers. Charge, illegal housing. Cecilia wanted to pee, but she didn't even dare breathe. Which of her neighbors had been the snitch? She waited for the rest of the charges to fall upon her. Electricity theft, theft of crystallized ash. None came. Penalty, eviction, the officer announced. Cosmos watched the asshole go away. His eyes burned from lack of sleep and tears that wouldn't well up. He waited to see him turn around the corner and then ran to the flaking front door and rang the top doorbell. What did you forget now? Aguela's voice came seconds before her face showed up on the small screen. She spoke in that adorable whiny tone that he loved, and her smile said that she wasn't really annoyed. As soon as she saw Cosmos, though, her mouth withered, her forty years suddenly showing. Haven't I told you to call before you show up? I, I tried, but there was no reception. The phone network must have been down again. He groped for an excuse. I won't stay long. Ten minutes, just to see her for a bit. Agela sighed and buzzed the door open. Her disapproval was a wave that penetrated walls and cables. Cosmos couldn't see or hear it, but he could taste it at the tip of his tongue. It tasted as tart as a quince. He climbed up to the fourth floor. The building smelled of mold and soot. It bothered him that they kept his little Athena in a place like that. The door was slightly open, and Agella was waiting for him, holding the baby in her arms, she looked pale and her skin was taut, like a hide left in the sun to dry. She moved aside and let him pass. Pictures of Agella, of the asshole, and of the child pounced on him from all directions. Thank you for letting me in, he told her finally. Are you all right? Are you getting enough sleep? You look tired. None of your business, she said sharply. Go on. Go see her. You said ten minutes. I will have to feed the baby shortly. I can't be bothered with you, too. Cosmos lowered his head, gritted his teeth, and walked to the bedroom. The double bed was undone, and he stood staring at it for a while. He urged himself to turn his gaze toward the real reason for his visit, the gray crystal ball in front of his daughter's picture. 
His eyes stung, but yet again no tears showed up. They were crystallized too, like Athena's ashes. He tenderly took her in his hands, carefully, just like when she was a newborn, and he was scared that the tiniest move would harm her. Morning, baby, he said in his mind. How are you doing? You must be doing well, better than any of us. Agela took care of her, not a single speck of dust on it. She hadn't forgotten about her, even though she had a new family now. None of us is going to forget you. How do you feel about having a little sibling? The ashes stayed silent, of course. He wished he could tell her what was new with him, how well the bakery was faring, what his new place looked like. I wish you were here so I could show it to you. Perhaps if he took her with him for a few days, but no, Agella wouldn't allow that. Why did she even want her? She had a new child and a new man had turned his little Athena into a bedroom decoration. He had nothing. What would it cost her to hand him his little girl? He trembled to think that the baby would grow up and break her by mistake while playing. She would be safer with him. This isn't good for you, Cosmos. Agella's voice pulled him out of his reverie. She stood by the bedroom door, her arms crossed over her chest. Her breasts were swollen with milk, which now stained her top. Don't forget that. I'm not forgetting. But we just lost her, Agella. I fucked up, I know, but now I'm better. Fine, I'm fine. I'm clean, and you... She straightened herself up and frowned. What about me? Wasn't she my child, too? Don't I miss her? she asked. Her tone was deceitfully harmless. Cosmas had much to say, but he knew that if he spat it out right there and then, he wouldn't see Athena again. He got distracted for a few seconds, watching the stain spread slowly on Agella's chest. I know you miss her. It's just that you've moved on, he said finally. Agella smiled faintly. Exhaustion and resignation barely balanced on her thin lips, like acrobats with a death wish. You never really move on after something like this, she said. You just survive, trying to find a way to make your day a bit more bearable. I found a way that works for me. Perhaps you need to look for yours. And it shouldn't be the easy one, she made sure to add, just in case Cosmos could have misunderstood her words. Not the easy one. He mumbled in agreement and got up to leave. He put the gray sphere back to its place and gently stroked it. We'll talk again soon, my little one. Take care of Mom. Thesea shoved a protein bar down her pocket. It tasted of beef, and its texture reminded her of soaked carton, but just one or two bites kept you going all day long. She hadn't really understood when and how she ended up living on the streets. Thief. A colorless voice brought her back to the present. She started. The automaton was floating a few centimeters above and behind her. 
It was cylindrical and graceless, with a round, half-risen sensor on top that made it look like an opened can. Thief, it repeated. She dug her hand into her worn jacket, ready to give the stolen bar back. Just as she was about to do so, someone darted forward from the adjacent aisle of the department store and, with a flowing movement, hit the automaton with a broomstick, slamming it against the shelves on the other side of the aisle. Run! her savior shouted. That savior was a girl, a couple of years older than her. She had dark brown hair, shaved on the sides and with dull ends in every color of the rainbow. Her eyes were smudged with eye pencil the rain must have ruined, streaking her cheeks with black tears. Her clothes were colorful, too. She was wearing three or four skirts of different lengths, one on top of the other, and a striped blue and purple top. A plastic silver tiara was propped up on her head. It looked a bit broken. Tessia gaped at her, frozen. The girl sighed, grabbed her arm, and started running, dragging her along. Voices, both human and mechanical, followed them between the aisles, but they managed to avoid automatons, customers, and carts altogether in an almost magical stroke of luck. As they approached the exit door, she saw the metallic doors roll down, and her heart sank. This was it. They'd be caught. But the girl kept pulling her toward the door, as if nothing was happening at all. The Sia saw her, shoving her free hand into her khaki jacket, pulling out something that looked like a marble. She threw it in the air without pausing her run. The department store's lights flickered and went out, the automatons froze midair. The electric carts stopped dead. The customers began protesting as the two of them ducked under the shutters that had rolled halfway down. Don't stop, the girl shouted. It won't last for long, and then they'll come after us. The Sia obeyed and followed her. She felt the weight of the stolen bar in her sleeve. It was the second time in her life that she'd stolen something. The first was at the crematorium, right before the incinerators gave shape to Aunt Katie's remains. She couldn't afford to take them out of there, which meant that her aunt was still waiting for her in one of the vast state storage units. She'd have to wait for a long time. When nobody was looking, Thesea had snapped off a crystal finger with great effort and had shoved it in her bosom. She still carried it with her. The girl pulled at her hard. They found themselves at a dead end. Behind them, the sounds of pursuit had abated. I'm Tatika, said the girl, panting. Do you trust me? she asked. Thesea nodded, unable to utter a single word. She wasn't sure whether the reason for her weakness was the dizziness she'd been feeling or plain fear. Tatika granted her a sly smile and nodded at her to come closer. At the back of the alley, there was a hole in the wall, covered with planks. They're not nailed down, she explained, as she kneeled to remove them. We've got plenty such spots around the city, for moments like this. They passed through to the other side, and propped the planks back up, concealing the passage. After a quick glance around, the seer realized she was in a deserted plot, abandoned to withered weeds frozen dead by the cold. 
Tatika sat down on a half-dry concrete slab. She retrieved a bar of chocolate from her pocket and unwrapped it. She broke off a piece and started chewing on it, slowly. You want some? she asked, extending the chocolate toward her. Vasia hesitantly reached out and took a piece. She bit off a tiny corner and sucked it for a bit, exploring the chocolate's flavor and texture. She knew that she wasn't supposed to accept gifts from strangers, even if they looked harmless, even if they had saved her from the security automatons. But the chocolate simply melted in her mouth, without any unpleasant surprises. Where do you live? She had to think for a bit. She didn't want to reveal her hideout. On my own, she finally said. I've found a place. I used to live with my aunt, but she's dead now. The girl bit her lips slowly and watched the sea for a while. Bummer, she frowned. It's not safe to be on your own, girl. How old are you? The sea still standing straightened her body. Sixteen. Tatika burst out laughing. <laughs> yeah, right. She pulled her sleeve and made her sit beside her. Stretching your neck is not going to make you taller, she said scornfully. You're tiny, like a droplet. Now spit it out, the truth. Thirteen, Visia admitted. You're coming with me, Tatika decided. No way am I leaving you on your own. It's going to bug me forever. I live in a house with other kids, no orphanage of any sort. The orphanages won't have us anyway. We're too old. I know. The sea interrupted. She remembered the blanket they'd given her before they turned her away and the pitiful look in their eyes. Did they really believe she'd make it on her own? You too, huh? Tatika raised her hand and ruffled her hair, just like Aunt Ketty used to. Doesn't matter, Droplet. We don't give a shit. We survive. So I live with some other kids, and we do whatever job we can take, you know, here and there, in order to get by. But we got food and fuel for the fire, and they all know we're Sakis's gang, so no one messes with us. That's it. You're coming with me, she repeated. Tasia didn't know what to say. She didn't have time to say much anyway. Tatika's fast talking was relentless. It wasn't the food that tempted her. She was used to getting by with very little. It was the promise of warmth, especially now that winter was showing its claws. All right, she agreed, taking another bite of chocolate. I'll come with you. Incoming call. The monotonous digital voice warned him through the loudspeakers. He had just wiped the sauce off his chin and put his fork down. He glanced at his watch. It was past ten. Except, he said. Hey, Cosmos! A panting yet sharp voice reached his ears. Music blazed in the background. He didn't recognize the tune. It must have been one of those meta-pop songs that had become very popular lately. It's Renos. Can you hear me? I'm listening. Tell me, he said. I've got some bad news, mate. 
And you need to remain calm, yes? Don't do anything crazy again, all right? Worry seeped through Reynolds' voice, despite the stupid music that accompanied it. Go on, Cosmos said. He drew a deep breath and held it in. He could feel his pulse pounding against his temples, his throat, his wrists, his stomach, everywhere. I just got a warning from the system. He's out on parole. Markakis, he clarified, as if he could have meant anyone else. Everything else around him fell silent. Terminate call and disconnect from the network, he commanded the AI. As you wish, Cosmos, the inhuman voice said. He laughed as soon as he heard it. <laughs> as I wish. He laughed and laughed until tears ran down his cheeks. He wiped his eyes with his fingers and inspected them shortly, put them in his mouth, tasted them. The taste, canned sauce and tears, reminded him of Agella and their desperate fuck after Athena's funeral. Don't do anything crazy, Renos's voice buzzed in his ears, and not the easy way. Fuck off, Agella. Not the easy way? He mumbled and kicked the coffee table in front of him. Plate, glass, fork, and towel were hurled onto the floor. A red stain spread on the white carpet, and the image seemed familiar to him. White and red, bandages soaked in blood and underneath. He stood up. He knew what he needed. He had saved a batch just in case. He had promised himself that he wouldn't use it. He only needed the security of knowing that it was there. He groped at the back of the liquor cupboard, and his fingers closed around the small hard crystals. No trace of the biodegradable plastic that kept them safe. He'd forgotten to change the bag, what with work and moving house. He pulled his findings out and examined them. The ash shimmered gray, one and the same with the remains of the dead. Three small rocks. They were barely enough. He thought of calling Marios. That's what you were supposed to do when you were about to relapse. You called your sponsor and you went out for a coffee. And then what? He'll tell me not to do it, that there are so many reasons not to, but what does he know? He's never lost a child. He was about to swallow the crystals, but he remembered in time that there was something important missing. Athena. He punched the cupboard. The cheap wood gave in, which was probably a good thing for his knuckles. The bottle rattled and some of them fell on the side. None broke. Neither did his hand. Just the cupboard. He gaped at it for a while. An angry hole in a cheap cupboard filled with alcohol that no one drank. Story of his life. He wondered how Marcacus would spend his first day out of prison. He wondered whether he'd get drunk again and kill someone else's child. Why did Renos have to tell him? It'd have been better if he'd never known. And now that you know, what are you going to do about it? A small voice whispered in his head. 
What did you do, you asshole? What did you do? There was a thud the moment someone's body hit the rickety deck. The sea spat on the floor once more and hid her face between her knees. Her throat was burning. Tears swelled in her eyes. She didn't want to watch. She didn't want to listen. She didn't want to be there. The squad at Elysian Street was exactly as Tatika had described. Thirteen teenagers that had taken over a run-down apartment building and made ends meet by taking on more or less illegal jobs. Cool off, Tatika. No big deal. I didn't fuck her or anything, Sakis replied, bored. Thesea felt a hand on her shoulder and jolted. It was Nikos. Droplet? he asked carefully. He had a sweet voice and sweet eyes. Thesea often thought that if she were older, she'd ask him to be her boyfriend. Are you okay? A few meters away, Tatika hollered, throwing punches at Sakis, who remained unbothered. Are you insane? Are you insane, you fucking asshole? She's a baby! Sakis pushed her away without much nerve and lit a cigarette. He shrugged. You shouldn't forget that you wasted an electromagnetic pulse bomb to save her, Tatika. These things cost a lot, and since she's been here, she's done nothing to repay me or to earn her share. And anyway, you're acting as if I'm a pedophile or something. It was just her mouth. I didn't go further. Tatika laughed, but this laughter did not come up as it should. It was different. Bad and bitter. It lingered like stench. Nikos put his arms around Tasia. She closed her eyes and breathed in. His smell, the smell of cheap deodorant and yarn that had been soaked and dried over and over, calmed her down. You're sick, mate. Totally psycho. So what? The little kid gave you a boner? And okay, you got a boner. Did you have to stick it somewhere? Tatika kept yelling. Vasia pulled Nikos' arms tighter around her. Shh, he whispered through her hair. It's okay, little one. It's okay, my droplet. You're all right now. If I were a fag like your boyfriend, I might stick it into you. But I'm not, and there's no other actual woman around, Saki said. There was a loud slap, and then silence. The Sia felt Nikos's muscles tighten. His tension was tangible beneath her arms as they were wrapped around him. She dared to open her eyes. Her friend's nostrils flared, as they did when she was furious. Tatika took a step toward Sakis and straightened her body. They were almost of the same height. If you touch her again, I'll rip your balls off, she said quietly. I ripped mine off, so don't think I'll hold back. Something passed through Sakis's gray eyes. Tasia wasn't sure whether it was fear, anger, or something else. Nonetheless, she saw him nod. Okay, now get the fuck out of my office. His voice was coarse and dry like the sea's throat. Nico, droplet, let's go, Tatika said, and they both followed her. Since that day, Sakis had never called them to his office again. 
he sent others to deliver messages and packages in various places in the city. Thesea had heard rumors that the packages contained ash, but she was under the vague impression that this ash was different from the pendant hanging on her chest. What did Sakis mean? she asked Atika on a quiet night. When he said that there's no other actual woman, what about you? Is it because you're Nikos's girl? Tatika has surrendered a stiff smile and ruffled the sea's hair. She always did that when she wanted to calm her down, the sea had noticed. First of all, I'm not Nikos's girl because he doesn't own me, she said, and despite her smile, her tone was serious. Second, Sakis is an asshole, and we don't listen to assholes. They rarely have anything useful to say. The Sia hadn't insisted. She rolled over and fallen asleep knowing that whatever happened, her friend would have her back. A few days later, Tatika and Nikos went out to deliver a package. Only Nikos came back, badly beaten and inconsolable. He said that Tatika had been picked up for illegal surgery operations. Someone had snitched her to the cops. Cosmos was waiting patiently for the door to open. I want you to come over, Agella had told him on the phone. We need to talk. The afternoon works better for me. I'll be alone. It had been years since they broke up, and not once had she told him that she wanted to see him. It could only mean one thing. Sakis had arranged everything. The young man he'd sent him seemed to have gone through some rough days. His eye was swollen and his thin arms bruised and full of cuts. Cosmos had given him the money and the name, hidden at the bottom of a candy box. He had topped it up with tiny cheese pastries. The door opened abruptly and Agella fell into his arms. At first he didn't have time to react. After the initial surprise, he realized that he had no idea how he should have reacted. He did nothing. He just let her hold him for as long as she needed to, until she realized that he wasn't hugging her back. Come in, she said, pulling his hand. She led him to the living room and had him sit on her white, flawless couch. Do you want coffee, juice? Agella asked, and for a moment he thought that the woman he'd fallen for stood before him. He shook his head. You wanted to talk to me. Yes. You know, Renos contacted me, Agella started, unable to hide her excitement. Play it clueless. Cosmos shrugged. I know. He called me, too, to tell me that Marcakis was out. No, no, I mean today, in the morning. He didn't want to bother you, and, and he didn't know how you'd react. We thought it'd be better to hear it from me. She talked fast, panting almost. Cosmos caught her hand and pulled her on the couch next to him. He expected her to resist. She didn't. This day is full of surprises after all. Calm down, he said, running his thumb across her wrist. What happened? 
She looked him in the eyes, and Cosmas forgot to breathe for a while. There was nothing harsh or judgmental in her gaze, no trace of last year's anger or disappointment. He's dead, Cosmas, she whispered. He's dead. A car ran over him yesterday, around midnight. I see, he said, and immediately he knew that he could have given a better answer, the right answer, but it was too late. Is that all you have to say? Agella asked. Cosmos shrugged. He didn't feel satisfied, just tired. At least he won't kill somebody else's child, he said quietly. But Athena is still dead, and she's not magically coming back. Tears welled up in Agella's eyes, and she lowered her head. She didn't want others to see her cry. There is justice in the world after all. She smiled faintly. Cosmos noticed that she looked younger, that whatever burden she carried had been suddenly lifted off her chest. Great. She can enjoy her new family now, he thought, bile rising up his throat. It wasn't justice, he said, and stood up. It was a bunch of money and a name on the bottom of a box filled with cheese pastries. What do you... I'd better get going. He interrupted her and headed to the door. Wait, she stopped him. Wait. She ran to the bedroom and came back holding their daughter in her hands. Cosmos looked at her, puzzled. I think you can have her now, she said. She seemed to think it over for a while, and then she rose on the tips of her toes and kissed him softly on the lips. Whatever you did, thank you, she whispered. Cosmos nodded. He didn't speak. He didn't know what would come out of his mouth if he had to open it. Perhaps more truth would pour out like the fact that he still loved her and that he didn't mind she'd left him back then. He would leave him too if he were her. He didn't mind that she got married and had a child with someone else. He didn't mind anything. The only thing he minded was that he didn't get to see her at night anymore, reading beside him on the bed. Just that. So, Saki's asked, as he zipped his pants. Thesea hesitated. He's running the shop on his own, she finally said. I haven't seen anyone else all these days I've staked it out. He seems like a good guy. As if it mattered to Sakis or to the rest of them. Perhaps Nikos would care, but Nikos was not Tatika, to barge in the office, push, yell, threaten, and finally be heard. Nikos was a drizzle, not a hurricane. That's even better. When you go over there tomorrow, give him this, he said, and handed her a sealed envelope. He brought a cigarette to his lips and lit it. He blew the smoke toward the ceiling. Go now. She glanced at the piles of gray crystals on the table. Sakis noticed. Yes, okay, you can have some he said and nodded, bored. She had tried the ash for the first time three months after Tatika's arrest. 
It was bitter, and she had almost spat it out immediately. Keep it in your mouth, Sakis had urged her. You'll like it in a while. Sakis said the same for many things. The Sia didn't believe him anymore. Indeed, neither the flavor nor the experience that followed became more pleasant as time passed, or at least not exactly pleasant. The ash reveals the ashes, Nikos had said. It shows you you're dead. She hadn't asked him which dead he saw. They slept in adjacent rooms, and sometimes she'd heard him talk to himself when he was high, but she hadn't understood to whom he was speaking. She saw Aunt Ketty. She would swallow the drug, lean back, and start sucking the crystallized fingers she'd always carried with her. No one knew why, but it helped. She'd heard some of the kids say that the ash belonged to a group of drugs called smart drugs, but she had no idea what that meant. Once or twice she had taken the ash without using the remains that hung around her neck. It had worked, but it was different. The illusion didn't feel as complete or as vivid. She stepped out of the office with five crystals held tightly in her palm. They were enough for two, maybe three times, if she managed to cut one of them in half. The ash did melt at once in the water or in the mouth, but otherwise it was rock hard. She ran the fingers of her free hand over her shirt without thinking. She touched the other ash, the one between her small, barely grown breasts. All ashes are hard. She didn't know if it were just an observation or one of these strange thoughts that kept circling her mind lately. Cosmas swallowed the three crystals and winced immediately. He had forgotten how bitter the ash was, but it was worth it. Anything was worth it if he'd meant he could see his Athena. It would take around twenty minutes for the drug to work, perhaps less now that he had been clean for so long. He dragged his feet to the bedroom and lay down on the bed, he flicked the switch overhead, the one that activated the electronic reader. Hello again, user, the digital voice said. Last connection 14 hours ago. Should I resume reading from that point? Cosmos turned off the switch. He wasn't in the mood for reading. He took the gray sphere from the nightstand beside him. It was as heavy as a loaf of bread. Who would think that a child and a loaf of bread would weigh the same? He stood up, went back into the kitchen, got a glass from the sink, rinsed it. Bitterness lingered in his mouth. He remembered the time he spent in the hospital, before the divorce. He was lucky to be alive. Still, as soon as he opened his eyes, he'd looked for his fix, sewn in the lining of his jacket. And he'd found it, and he'd taken it. Of course, Angela made sure not to leave Athena's ashes with him while he was recovering. She knew. That experience was completely different. When he finally saw her, his daughter looked nothing like what he remembered. Her figure was blurry and undefined, and in contrast to any other time he'd had the drug... This time he knew that what he saw before him wasn't real. That's when he tried to kill himself. 
They'd found him in time, but their relationship didn't survive the attempt. He closed his eyes and brought the crystal sphere to his lips. He placed his tongue on its surface. He waited. Even the rehab group he'd joined didn't know how the ash worked. Rumors had it that it consisted of biodegradable nanorobots which read the genetic material of the ashes and urged the brain to generate the suitable hallucinogenic cocktail on its own. Cosmos didn't believe the rumors. The only thing he believed was that the ash needed real ashes in order to work as it should. He turned to face the living room and opened his eyes. His little Athena was there, more real than any holographic projection. He approached her with trembling knees. Her hair was wavy and bushy, her lips pouting. She had her arms crossed on her chest and stomped the floor impatiently. Cosmos leaned over and hugged her. His hands touched her. His nostrils were filled with her smell, cotton and cheap soap. The illusion was as total as the memory of her. Daddy? Even her voice sounded real. Cosmos burst into tears. Nikos was waiting for her in her room. He was pacing with his hands tied behind his back. His hair was tousled, pointing at every possible direction. He had lost weight, and dark circles ringed his eyes. When Thesea entered, he jumped, startled. How did it go? he asked. His voice was screechy and taut like a rubber band about to break. Thesea looked at the crystals in her palm. That's what Nikos always asked her when she came back from Saki's office since they'd lost Tatika. How did it go? Fine, she said. He always asked and she always lied. She wasn't sure whether he believed her lies or chose to believe him. Does he still have you stalking the baker? Thesia nodded. He gave me a file which I have to deliver to him. He seems to be a good guy, she said for the second time in the span of minutes. Nikos... He stopped pacing and looked at her. His gaze was haunted. I don't want to. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. Tatika, where are you? I miss you. She said nothing. It was pointless. She tried to imagine what Tatika would tell her if she were here. We survived, Droplet. Even when nobody wants to help us, we help ourselves and we survive. Once in a while, Thesea wondered whether her friend had been forced to do the same things she had to do now in order to survive. Whether she was forced to do worse. She wasn't older than fifteen. Her eyes were huge and innocent, dusty green and her face angular. But actually, what made him notice her was her hair, wavy and bushy, like Athena's. It took him a while to notice her hungry gaze and the protruding bones on her wrists. He took his gloves off and stepped out. The kid was still there. 
Are you hungry, little one? he asked. It came out so naturally, as if he had never stopped talking to a child. She startled and recoiled. Her dirty hands had left fingerprints all over the window glass. She nodded. What do you prefer? Do you want a kaluri? A croissant? He tried to encourage her to talk. He didn't go near her to avoid making her feel threatened. Why don't you come inside? Choose for yourself. I don't have any money, the girl whispered. Cosmas smiled. No worries. You can give me the money whenever you have it, he reassured her. Come on in, he repeated. It's cold. What's your name? To see you, the little girl said, and followed him inside the shop. I'm Cosmas. So, did you decide what you want? A croissant, the girl said, staring at him with her huge eyes. He took one out of the shop front glass and gave it to her. It was still warm. She immediately stuffed half of it in her mouth, smudging herself with chocolate and crumbs. Are you on your own? he asked. Your parents? The girl skirted his gaze. She shoved her small, lithe fingers in the pocket of her torn jeans and fished out a sealed, wrinkled envelope. She held it out towards him. I live in a house with some kids, she said in a low voice. An orphanage. He took the envelope, puzzled, and didn't open it immediately and they let them go around looking so disheveled. Well, they probably didn't have access to running water for long, and how many children to bathe during that window? Cosmos feels guilty for his slip the other day. Three ash crystals cost more than a box of protein bars. Just one box would feed an entire orphanage for days. When he'd first met Mario's, he told him that he was hooked on the ash, because it was a luxury he could afford. He wasn't wrong. I see. He smiled at her absent-mindedly and tore the edge of the envelope off. Fasia saw him take out a piece of paper, smudged with Sakis's sloppy, ugly handwriting, and a small flat metal disc, a disposable, portable storage device. She had delivered such envelopes in the past, and she knew what they meant. Blackmail. She slowly chewed the last bite of her croissant. She didn't want to risk dropping anything when Cosmos would kick her out. She observed his face. There were dark circles under his eyes, and his cheekbones looked so sharp that you could cut your fingers on them. She already knows, he said, looking at the Sia. His expression gave nothing away. I told her, so Sakis can do as he wishes. She nodded hesitantly. Now he'll tell me to get out. Did you like the croissant? He asked her all of a sudden, and his gaze softened again. A lot, the Sia said and cast a longing glance at the shop front window. Cosmos smiled, and his smile stretched so wide that it absorbed all the weariness and the lack of sleep 
His face lit up. You've got a sweet tooth like my girl Athena, he said. He took out a box and filled it with the rest of the croissants. Yours. And you can come back whenever you want. I'll scrounge something up for you. And don't worry about the money. Whenever it works for you. Thesea looked at him in disbelief. She hesitantly extended her hand, expecting him to pull the box back at the last moment to laugh at her naivete. He didn't. Thank you, she whispered, at a loss for words. No, it's nothing. Just just be careful at that place you live, yes? Zakis? I'll be careful, she said quickly. She knew very well what kind of person Sakis was, but for the first time, she realized that she might not have been the only one who knew. The girl came to the bakery almost every day now. Cosmas had found out more things about her. She had told him about her aunt and the orphanage that had turned her away, about the first days on the streets and the squat she'd been living in now. She was fourteen. He'd guessed right. The croissant dough is the most difficult, he explained. You have to cut it and spread the right amount of butter, freeze it at the right temperature, and then be prepared for some hard work. Here, look, he said, showing her how he placed a thin square sheet of frozen butter on the dough, rolling them both out with the rolling pin. As soon as you do that, you fold and flatten again with the rolling pin, repeating the process until the butter has spread everywhere. That's how you make these characteristic layers of the croissant's dough. Thesea watched him with her eyes open wide, nodding all along. She was smiling. Flour is the most magical material in the universe, she told him. You can turn it into so many things. He glanced up at her. Would you like to work here someday? He dared to ask her. He tried to keep his tone casual to hide how much he desperately wished for a positive answer. He didn't want to push her. Athena always reacted badly when he badgered her about the bakery. I'd love to, the girl said. What? For real? Do you mean it? Cosmas nodded. But you'll have to do something for me first. Thesea's eyes darkened, but she nodded. I understand. She climbed down from the tall stool she'd been sitting on and touched his belt. Cosmos jerked backwards. Flour flew everywhere, and the rolling pin hit the floor with a thud. What? what? He managed to utter. He felt his pulse throbbing behind his eyeballs, and one of his eyelids started to quail. The girl had recoiled, half startled, half scared. Cosmos swallowed hard and took a step toward her. He kneeled before her and placed his hands on her shoulders. I meant that you have to go back to school. Look at me, Thesea. Look at me. She obeyed. You don't, you don't have to do that. Ever. Not for anyone. Not for anyone, you hear me? 
Only when you're older and only if you want it. Do you understand? And if there's someone who's making you do this, I want you to tell me, okay? She nodded. Tears hung from her eyelashes. Cosmas took a deep breath and hugged her for the first time. It was a familiar, yet strange feeling. The height was different, the smell was different, even the emotion was different. But she was a child who needed a parent's arms, and he was a parent who had forgotten what it felt like having a real, tangible child in his arms. He let her cry, and he held her for as long as they both needed it. And for now, this was enough. Thesea considered telling Cosmos the truth about Sakis, but feared that he would do something stupid and Sakis would send him to prison, like he did with Titika. She didn't sleep that night. She waited until everyone was asleep, and when she made sure that no one would hear her, she sneaked into Nikos's room. She sat by the edge of the mattress, placed her palm on her lips, and nudged him. He jerked awake and elbowed her in the side by mistake. The Sia bit her lips to hold back a yelp. If anyone heard her, her plan would be ruined. Shh, she whispered into his ear. It's me. We have to be quiet. Nikos nodded and removed her palm from his mouth. What's going on? he asked, still half asleep. You need to go. The Sia told him. Wake up whomever you want, pack whatever you need, and go. He looked at her, puzzled. Why? The Sia stood up. Because I'll burn this fucking place down. In the quiet of the night, she thought that her voice had a coating similar to Tatika's. I'll burn it to the ground, and Sakis along with it. I don't... I don't understand, Nikos muttered. You know, she told him. You've known for a long time. But you held me in your arms back then, and you caressed my hair and you cared for me. That's why I'm waking you up now, not for you to stop me. Nikos bowed his head. A few seconds later, he got up and started getting dressed. The Sia let him be on his own. She knew he wouldn't warn anyone. Everyone knew what was happening when she went into Sakis's office. Everyone suspected that he had snitched on Tatika. No one had done a thing about it. Never mind. She emptied the canister of the odorless fuel they used to light the fireplace across the building's corridors. I got it. Cosmos didn't expect to see Thesea so early. It was three in the morning, the time he opened the bakery workshop to prepare the dough and start baking. The girl waited for him outside. Her face was smudged and her hair full of ash. What happened? he asked, scared. Are you okay? She stood up from the steps. Yes. The house I've been living in, though, and the other kids? I don't know. There weren't tears in her eyes. Cosmos assumed it was because of the shock that she hadn't yet realized what exactly had happened. 
You're okay. That's what matters, he told her. You can stay over at my place if you want to, at least until we can find a permanent place for you to stay, he added quickly. He didn't want to sound pressing. My apartment is not huge, but we'll make do. Come on, let's get you clean and in fresh clothes. Don't sit like that with the ashes all over you. I'll open the shop a bit later today. Never mind. Come on, Mythesia. Mythesia, like my Athena. The words were new for him, but they fit so well together, as if he'd been saying them forever. And there you go. A huge thank you, Darlandia. Thank you so much indeed. Oh, please send in some more originals. That was just amazing. Thank you so much. And Summer, just a big hug. That's just lovely. Thank you. It's lovely to have you on. Just hope you're well. I hope everyone is well in, in these strange times. So, ABH, oh God, ABH, dear, just... Is this just my, like, <laughs> I'm just all excited? Cause it's actually, like I say, two weeks, so it's been a while, so I'm just so excited to kind of get on the mic and, you know, hopefully people listening and, and share my enthusiasm. But it's Amy, <laughs> sorry, I'm waffling. Amy H. Sturgis, what have you got for us today? Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. I hope that all of you and your loved ones are well and safe. Today I'd like to talk about a book I just finished, an anthology that was a fantastic read and is guaranteed to take your mind off of, at least for a few minutes, what's going on in the world around us. It is Women's Weird, Strange Stories by Women, 1890 to 1940, edited by Melissa Edmondson. It came out last year from Handheld Press, and there is another volume, Women's Weird 2, that will come out toward the end of this year. I have already pre-ordered it, and I want to share with you reasons why I think this is such a great book. But first, I want to say that I have recently discovered Melissa Edmondson as a scholar, and I have been devouring her writing. She publishes on 19th and early 20th century British women writers, she has a particular interest in supernatural fiction, and some of the works that she has dealt with, including works in this volume, are what I would consider to be science fiction. She is the editor of a 2011 critical edition of Alice Perrin's East of Suez, which originally was published in 1901. She's the author of Women's Ghost Literature in 19th Century Britain from the University of Wales Press, Women's Colonial Gothic Writing, 1850-1930, Haunted Empire, from Palgrave Macmillan. Just got that. Looking forward to reading that. She also edited Avenging Angels, Ghost Stories by Victorian Women Writers, which came out with Victorian Secrets in 2018. Another really good book. Perfect, perfect Halloween reading. In the introduction to Women's Weird... Edmondson engages with different definitions of the weird, uh, including the one that is closest to my understanding, and that comes from H.P. Lovecraft, when he writes that atmosphere is the all-important thing, and that the one test of the really weird is simply this, whether or not there be excited in the reader a profound sense of dread and of contact with unknown spheres and powers, that that atmosphere and that impact on the reader. 
She goes on to look at other definitions of the weird, and then the way the weird has been handled by editors and scholars, and she admits that it's very difficult to define the weird. You sort of know it when you see it, or better yet, when you feel it. But one current that runs through all of the edited and scholarly treatments of the weird is that women aren't really terribly well represented, and Edmondson finds that's actually at odds with women's publishing. And so one of the goals of this volume, she says, is to spotlight women's involvement in weird fiction. She says, and I quote, like the unseen worlds that populate weird fiction, these writers and their works are out there, just waiting to be discovered, end quote. And so this collection is an attempt to help readers discover some of the best of these writers. And what a lineup this is. There are some well-known names here, such as Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Edith Nesbitt, and Frances Stevens, you may recall that way back on episode 41, I devoted a looking back into genre history segment to Frances Stevens. But there are also lesser known names, real discoveries and finds. And one of the best things about this book is that the stories are very different from each other. They really run the whole spectrum of what the weird can do and of what women authors were doing at the time. I thought I would focus on a couple of stories. I'll start with Hodge by Eleanor Mordaunt, or Mordaunt. It's M-O-R-D-A-U-N-T. I am new to this author. Fortunately, Melissa Edmondson is also editing a collection of her stories, and that will also be coming out with Handheld Press. And yes, I've already pre-ordered that too. Uh, I was really impressed by the story. It is clearly straight-up science fiction, and it's a story about a brother and sister who live by the coast and discover an ancient forest and eventually a prehistoric man underneath the mud there on the beach, and they uncover him, and they bring him back to life. They essentially bring this caveman uh, to the present day, to their present day, and they call that creature, that human, Hodge. Here is a little excerpt from the story. They crept towards it. It was clear enough at a little distance, but nearer what with the blazing sun and the queer incandescent lights on the mud, they found difficulty in exactly placing it. At last they had it, found themselves immediately over it, were able, kneeling side by side, to gaze down at the strange, age-old figure, lying huddled together, face forward. It was not more than a couple of feet down. The semi-transparent mud must have been silting over it for years and years, silted away again through centuries. And all for them, just for them, what a thought! Well, as you might guess, the ending is not a pleasant one. Here are some of the things Melissa Edmondson says about the story. Curiosity, obsession, and misunderstanding resurface in Eleanor Mordaunt's Hodge from 1921, when the past literally comes back to life, 
As a prehistoric being, Hodge is not separate from the natural world, as many weird creatures usually are, but is instead an ancient being out of deep time. He is a temporal other, belonging to the place but not to the time. The narrator describes this distance between prehistory and modernity when describing Hodge. And here, now quoting from the story, silhouetted against the sea and sky, white in contrast to its darkness, it had the aloofness of incredible age, drawn apart, almost sanctified by its immeasurable remoteness, its detachment from all that meant life to the men and women of the 20th century, the web of fancied necessities, trivial possessions, absorptions, end quote. And she goes on to say, Hodge is never allowed to become fully a part of the world he is reborn into, and thus is not allowed to completely come back to life, end quote. And so this is, in a kind of way, a haunting, because, in a sense, Hodge, this ancient prehistoric man, is sort of distanced, just like a ghost would be. As I've already suggested, the ending is not a happy one, but we're left to question whether that tells us more about prehistoric humanity or more about modern humanity. And it's a fascinating and disturbing and intriguing story. There is definitely a lot going on there. I'd also like to mention another story, one that really <laughs> gave me the eebie-jeebies in the most wonderful way, and it's also a premise that I haven't quite seen dealt with in the same way that it was dealt with here. It is The Book from 1935 by Margaret Irwin, and The Book is, in a sense, the main character, the way the book acts on the father and husband of a family. The book gives the man instructions, and uh, there is a hopeful twist in the sense that free will in the face of evil does become a theme. Can we choose not to do wrong, even when we are under extreme pressure to do wrong? I'm fascinated by the way the book is a character here. In times when people are restless or disaffected or simply just wanting some entertainment, and they go to the bookshelf, the book manages to twist the other works, or at least the perceptions of the other works, so that readers are just really dissatisfied with the books that they choose. Even if they're pulling off uh, the shelf a book that they've already read before and loved as a kind of comfort reread, suddenly they see things in the books they haven't seen before, and it disturbs them and it bothers them. And so by essentially herding the readers away from the other books, eventually people come to the one book that wants to be read. There's a great description here uh, that stuck with me. The, this is from the father's point of view. Whistling happily, he was pouring out his final cup of coffee when his hand remained arrested in the act as his glance, roving over the bookcase, noticed that there was now no gap at all in the second shelf. He asked who had been at the bookcase already, but neither of the girls had, nor Dickie, and Mrs. Corbett was not yet down. The maid never touched the books. They wanted to know what book he missed in it, which made him look foolish, as he could not say. The things that disturb us at midnight are negligible at 9 a.m. 
I thought there was a gap in the second shelf, he said, but it doesn't matter. There never is a gap in the second shelf, said little Jean brightly. You can take out lots of books from it, and when you go back, the gap's always filled up. Haven't you noticed that? I have. Creepy! There's some wonderful descriptions of how books that the kids had been reading that they had read before suddenly disturbed them, and they cried over them, or they kicked them away because suddenly these books didn't work for them anymore. They saw in familiar illustrations suddenly evil faces, for example. So this is an example of that one book sort of pushing everyone away from all of their other reading options. There is, in fact, new writing in this one book on the back page, the final page. Every time the protagonist picks it up and he takes his cues, at least initially, from there. Really good stuff. Embracing the whole notion of the weird, this anthology includes 13 stories. Also, biographical notes on the authors, bibliographical details, a helpful list of further reading suggestions, and very useful notes that give context to the stories. In her introduction, Edmondson makes a good argument for expanding our understanding of and consumption of the history of weird literature and the works that made it. As she points out, a, a lot of the history of supernatural fiction has until very recently been written predominantly by white male scholars about white male authors. And she says, quote, This is not to say that these male-authored works do not deserve scholarly attention. But by only focusing on this group of white men, we perpetuate a very incomplete picture of the history of weird literature, end quote. Well, she is helping expand and complicate and enrich our understanding of the history of weird literature and the works that contributed to its growth and evolution. So if you are looking to partake of a bit of genre history, including works that are very much science fiction or science fiction adjacent, well, I definitely recommend Women's Weird, Strange Stories by Women, 1890 to 1940, edited by Melissa Edmondson from Handheld Press. Not only did I gain new insights into the weird, but I also just genuinely enjoyed reading this anthology. As I said, the stories are very different from each other. They're all compelling, imaginative works that transport you away from what we're dealing with right now and give terrific escape as well as uh, some fun chills and thrills. Uh, these are really good stories, so I hope you will check those out or perhaps some of the other works from Handheld Press or edited by or written by Melissa Edmondson. I hope you and yours stay safe and well and in good spirits, my friends, and I look forward to joining you again soon with something completely different when we meet again to take another look back into genre history. Thank you. And there you go. Amy, thank you so much. Oh, man, thank you indeed. Honestly, just big, big hugs in this scary times. I looked over on when I was going for Amy's link because there's there's a link to Amy, you know, when, I, when you do the show, I put a link on the Amy's site, and I went onto our Twitter, 
disappear. And I love that Twitter photograph. You know, it's it's Amy, but she's got this kind of mask on. Do you know what I mean? And it just looks, you know, I know the times are strange, but that that photograph of me is amazing. Do you know what I mean? That's just fantastic. Anyway, that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Listen if you can support her. I know I'm kind of waffling on and you kind of feel guilty about doing it, but it's the only way we survive, do you know what I mean? It's just, I want to get back onto the kind of, the every every week, hopefully, when all this kind of kicks over. And we just, at this moment, not in that position, do you know what I mean? And I hate that, I absolutely hate that. So if you can support on Patreon, that would be good. A little as $2 a month, just, man. If everyone did that, that would be fantastic. It truly would. I'll come over to Patreon, uh, sorry, PayPal, and that would be a help as well, a massive help. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I'll get out there by and by 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 I